Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And uh, hey, Julie, I, I should ask you this before we actually start a recording, but do you have any endoparasites on you? Because I'm all out. No, no, I can't get them from uh, the website that I used to get them from anymore. Oh, yeah, because I'm feeling a little chunky, and I would really like to drop a few pounds. Well, yeah, I mean, um, a parasite diet is really the way to go if you want to drop a couple. And then, I mean, the, the only problem, though, is that um, you kind of get these little weird side effects like abdominal pain and distension yeah. and vomiting and diarrhea and malnutrition and ugh, itchy anus. Yeah. Yeah, th- th- that'll stack up. Throw in a little psychosis on top of that and it'll... Uh... It really takes a toll, but you look fabulous. So I'm, I, I really don't see what the big deal is. Thanks, thanks. Yeah. I know, and that's what I thought when, when uh, officials in Hong Kong were shutting down websites <laughs> selling the Ascaris roundworm, which people were using as a weight loss uh, diet. Yeah, the, the story was uh, picked up by a lot of people because the idea is is, is great because it's like a parasite, the thing that we don't want. Right. The, the parasite we avoid. is like, yeah. It's like the. Uh, if you ever saw the Mosquito Coast, there's like this great scene where Harrison Ford's crazy character like kills a mosquito and he's like, he's making a point about some thugs that are living off their crazy compound. But he's, he's like, he points to the blood and he's like, that's, that's your blood, not the mosquito's blood. You know, it's right, like the, yeah. the parasite is just leeching something off of us and we're getting nothing in return. Um, but the, the closer you look at sim, at, uh, at parasitic relationships, the more you realize that a lot of what we think of as, as parasitic relationships are actually symbiotic relationships. Yes. That there's a lot more give and take. Um, there's back scratching going there's on. There's back scratching going on. And, and so the idea of benefiting from a parasite is, is not that crazy an idea at all. And, uh, and likewise, as we'll explore some of, some examples of symbiosis, uh, when you look closer, they look a little more parasitic. Uh, and, it, it it just really it blew my mind the more I looked into this because it yeah. it really changes the way you look at all interactions between all organisms. Yeah, yeah. the entire planet actually. When you start to look at um just like the the basic ecosystems on our bodies, inside of our our guts, uh-huh. outside of our bodies, you know, in the ocean, so on and so forth. I mean, it just even the way you look at a tree these days now, you're like, oh my god, there's so much more going on than we ever imagined. Yeah. But I jump ahead of myself there with the tree. Well, let, let me just break it down real quick then for um, for anybody that's uh, that's new to this. What is symbiosis? All right, yeah. symbiosis. This is an example where we have a situation where we have two organisms of different species existing in close physical contact to the benefit of both organisms. That's the the blanket symbiosis. That's the official yeah. word. Yeah, but then you have different types. For instance, there's um, uh, commensalism. And this is when one organism benefits and the other isn't affected much at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, then there's mutually beneficial, where mm-hmm. both sides make out okay. Uh, then there's uh, parasitism, of course, where one organism benefits and the other one uh, suffers or right. even dies. And then there's obligate symbiosis, and this is where the a situation where the symbiosis is necessary to survival. So okay. it's like there are these two things in this relationship, two species intertwined, and they need each other to survive. Without yeah. each other, they're doomed. And you've got a really good example of that, right? Yes, I do. Uh, there is um, a particular uh, creature that's just really bizarre, um, one of the strangest cases of symbiosis you'll run across, called the uh, ASOL, that's A-C-O-E-L, A-S-O-L, um, flatworm. Uh, 
And uh, these tiny worms live along shorelines, and they look like masses of seaweed. The worms themselves are transparent, but uh, if, if you were to look ins- inside them, uh, you'd find this uh, type of algae, this uh, uh, platymonas uh, algae, which contains chlorophyll and is capable of photosynthesis. And they give the, this worms this green color, okay. right? So the algae absorbs sunlight through the worm's clear skin, and they photosynthesize food, enough food, that the uh, worms have no functioning digestive tract or even working mouths. Yeah. And uh, the algae even recycle the worms' waste products. So it, you've got this just crazy situation where it's like, like uh, you can live rent free. Yeah, <laughs> flatworm <laughs> algae, and they've they've lived together so long. Yeah. that they're they're one thing. They're like you can't. It's really hard to separate where one ends right. and the other begins. Right. Yeah, especially with the coloring, and you know what I'm saying. That the actual physical representation is created by the the. Parasite, I suppose you would call in this instance the the algae. Yeah, it's like a sweet old couple, you know, that have lived together so long that they're just this one uh, one thing, and they the, the idea of one living without the other is just ridiculous. Oh, that's sweet. I just started thinking like old couples that look like each other walking down the street with hands in each other's pockets. Yeah. Uh, now the other type is um, a facultative symbiosis, and this is where the symbiosis is is great. But not necessary to survival. Yeah. And which is a lot of symbiosis. Yeah. Uh, and then you have endosymbiotes, which live inside another organism, and ectosymbiotes, which live on the body of another. Right. Uh, but. An to- endo doesn't include the digestive system, by the way. So okay. there could, you could have a parasite in your digestive system and it would still be considered exo. Okay. And I'm, I'm assuming because eventually it, it gets purged. Right. Kind of think of the human body as a donut. And it's like, even if it's in the hole, it's, it's, it's hexo. <laughs> right, right. Like, that's a good way to put it. Um, I, I it gets more complicated if you get into crullers and jellies, though. So that's oh, yeah. why we don't use a lot of donut analogies on this show. No, no. But we don't want to confuse things. But I do find the roommates analogy really interesting because when you look at this, because it's like take any two roommates or any two people that live together in the same environment and you'll encounter different give and take. Um, I, I think when we've talked about it before, we've used also uh, like couples as an example. Yeah. Like sometimes you'll have a, a situation where where like the, say the wife has a job and the, the husband definitely does not. <laughs> right. And is uh, sitting on the couch all day. Um He's he's really not contributing a lot to this uh, situation, uh, but he he may be hurting to one degree or another. But he's he's benefiting. Okay, and yeah. I think about that as like the commensalism, right? Yeah. So and and then when I think about commensalism, I always think about barnacles. Yeah. Like they just attach to anything. Yeah. I'm not saying that the guy is a barnacle. He might but be I'm a just, barnacle. Yeah. I've, I've I've met a few barnacles in my time. Yeah. Well, but in nature, I specifically thought, of course, that's the barnacle. They're like the hobos of the sea. <laughs> Um, and then with parasitism, another example right off the top of my head is just ticks, right? Yeah. Like that's, that's obvious. They're just sucking our blood. They drink your blood, maybe give you Lyme disease and then fall off. Right. Right. Um, and then again, mutually beneficial, uh, you talked about the flatworm. There's also cleaner shrimp and they actually hang out on coral reefs and then they hit up passing fish to clean their windshield, so to speak. Uh, and they crawl onto the fish, and sometimes they get into their mouths and remove dead skin cells. I thought that was really interesting. Like, they're huh. just hanging out there. It's like a little car wash. Yeah, there are a number of cleaner species. I mean, in the ocean, it's like they're just crazy. Just, it seems like every, every species has some other species that it'll let come into its mouth and hang out and eat stuff off their teeth, you know? Right, right. Um, but uh, And then there, there are also some uh, examples uh, outside of the oceans. For instance, there is the oxpecker. And, uh, mm-hmm. sorry, the ox pecker. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and they're, uh, 
these uh, the, you'll typically see these uh, like on the backs of zebras in uh, in uh, safari films, okay. you know, and they're uh, you know they're hanging around out there and they're eating lice, ticks, and other little annoyances. Um, and it and on the surface it looks like a natural example of a symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to eat your parasites, uh, you're getting rid of your parasites, and I'm getting a dinner out of it, right? Right. However, um, uh, their actions are not always completely in the interest of the host. Uh, they are suspected sometimes of nipping open wounds on the zebra's back in order to encourage more parasites or even to, uh, to, to have a little blood, like they just sort of open a little slit and ha- have a, have a little to drink. A little sauce. Yeah. On their meal. Yeah. It's kind of like, like you're, 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 you know, as long as I'm back here, you know, eating your ticks, it's like, I think I'm going to have a little of this delicious blood that you've got uh, going on. Right. And if you're the zebra, you're probably like, what are you doing in my, yeah. what are you doing in my rump back there? <laughs> like what's you probably are feeling it, but you're like, okay, this is probably not beneficial for me anymore and try to swat it away. Yeah, it's kind of a like yeah, a situation where a relationship perhaps changes over time because it makes you wonder like was there a time in the past when the oxpecker zebra relationship was a lot more equal? Has it right. become a, a little more one-sided over time over time? Uh, it, it just uh, it's it's fascinating to, to think of these things. You know? Well, I mean, as habitats change too, that, that could certainly change the behavior. Yeah, yeah, like say there are less lice to go around, maybe you have to dip into the blood a little. Yeah. Um Economic, you know, and then you can make advantage, you can make uh, comparisons to workplace, you know. Uh, economy turns bad. Maybe the guy who's normally a model employee suddenly starts stealing pencils and sell, selling them at the subway station or something. I don't know. What, is there something you want to tell us? Yes, I steal p- pencils and sell them uh, at the train okay, station. Okay, I thought that yeah. was you. Yeah. yeah. I've got to come up with a better way to, to, uh, to steal from work. It's just not, not yeah. breaking in the dough I was hoping for. I know. These I are know. good pencils. I know. But what are you going to do? It's not really a pencil society anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But talking about different uh, types of symbiosis also made me think about something called the Gaia theory. Ah, uh, Gaia theory. Yeah, which is really interesting. Gaia being Greek for goddess, right? Mm-hmm. Or a Greek goddess, rather. Um, which is also sometimes called symbiogenesis. So there's this idea out symbiogenesis there. Symbiogenesis sounds a lot less hippy-dippy. It does, yeah. yeah. Gaia, I know, I just think about my yoga mat. and It's, it's not really feeling uh, like science so much. But uh, there's an idea out there, and it's called uh, endosymbiosis, which is essentially um, symbiosis and not chance mutation, as we've known about in ev- evolution, that's key to evolution. So what they're basically saying is that it's more of a cooperative atmosphere between organisms in the environment that are driving natural selection than competition. Which is really interesting. Kind of turned everybody on their their butts when this was first introduced in the 1960s. In particular, uh, Richard Dawkins, who was like, "No, no, this is this is crazy talk." Because it's kind of a situation where instead of survival of the like the sneakiest jerk, it's survival of the most cooperative. Right, right. It's not you know, it's it's not hacking off your your rivals just so that you can be the one who continues. Uh, forward, right? They're actually saying that this is key to complex life. Um, so if you think of the mitochondria, uh, nuclei and ribosomes separately, think about them coming together in this scenario uh, as part of the cell and, and creating this mutually beneficial organism. Mm-hmm. It's And that's the, the idea behind this. It's just really interesting. Yeah. So it's like the whole world becomes a, a, an example of symbiosis. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, the planet is, is essentially a, a giant super organism huh. working together. Now, of course, there are people who say, eh, I'm not really sure about this, especially that part about um, about this cooperation versus competition, because we know that, you know, 
that competition has really sh- shown itself through data. Which right. definitely proven itself. But I think it's just a different way to look at evolution, which is kind of interesting. This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of tomorrow. There, uh, here's another uh, really interesting example of symbiosis. Um, there are uh, certain species of uh, woodpeckers and tree ants, and they're known to uh, call temporary truces. All right, the uh, the southern rufous woodpecker and the black tree ant. Um, normally, these guys are predator and, and prey. Right. The, the ants live in the tree. Woodpeckers eat the little ants. Right. But when the bird lays its eggs in the nest of the ants, uh, they have this non-aggression pack that kicks in, and uh, and that the, the uh, ants end up protecting the bird's eggs from attack and the uh, attack by the the nest and the ants uh, nest from other birds mm-hmm. while the uh, the chosen bird is nesting there. So I found that really interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that kind of goes into that whole idea of uh, the Gaia theory. Yeah. Or uh, you have examples, too. Of there's cooperation. A, yeah. There's a there's a particular uh, species of owl that has been known to bring um, little bitty snakes. I believe it's a, a Texan snake. Um, like a little worm type snake. Not, not like an egg gobbling snake, but a very tiny uh uh, like worm size, kind of blind little snake. And they'll bring it in and leave it in the uh, in the nest, because then it'll eat uh, various uh, little creatures that will be uh, little insects that would be a danger to the uh, hatchlings. Huh? Yeah. All right, that's interesting. Um, and there's another example that I really like, and that's again going back to trees, which we talked about at the top. Ninety percent of the world's plants have their own fungal partners that allow them to survive, which is crazy when you think about it, right? You just look at the tree and you think that it's its, it's own um, entity mm-hmm. hanging out there. So a type of fungus, mycorrhizal, draws in nutrients and supplies it to the tree. And it basically benefits from the tree by taking the sugars from the tree. Uh-huh. And, and, it, and then it gets an energy boost, basically, from the tree's photosynthesis of that. So if you look at those toadstools around the base of trees, those are actually the reproductive organs of subterranean fungal networks that plants and trees tap into. So, I mean, just think about that next time you're you're standing on a mushroom there. Huh. It it was uh, fascinating. Uh, I was recently in Costa Rica and... Uh, uh, my wife and I went on these, uh, these walks through the, the jungle areas there and it was just fascinating to just see like all the life around you and it's just like mm-hmm. things living on top of each other, uh, uh, in various states of symbiosis and, and parasitism. It's, it, it's pretty, pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. And particularly in that atmosphere where it's, it, you know, the sun doesn't necessarily hit the, the forest bed, right? Right. And you see how everything is growing up toward the sun and trying to get one little speck of it, you know, photon. Yeah, and it's really it. Um, this is an example too, where it really makes it hard, to my mind, to argue that competition isn't a key because you see the competition yeah. for sunlight, and there's not, you don't get the sense of it's like, hey guys, let's make sure we share the sunlight. Quit hogging it there, or, or uh, you know, or, or, or hey, strangler fig, stop killing that tree. <laughs> I know you want sunlight, yeah. but you need to share. Yeah, yeah, it's not. That's not exactly cooperation yeah. there. Uh, but so we've talked about that in nature. There's definitely instances in humans and of course the best known is our gut flora right Right. and in fact if you look at japanese people here's a really good example they have bacteria in their guts that produce enzymes which help digest seaweed um north americans lack the same systems wow yeah so does that mean i should not have seaweed salad the next time i go 
for sushi? You should, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that the uh, digestive outcome. Don't try and keep up is... with with any Japanese individuals. Yes. And, okay. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. for uh, so if you <laughs> derailing have... where I was going with that. <laughs> if you have <laughs> Japanese friends, then and you go out to sushi with them. Don't try, don't try and keep up because they're going right. to beat you every time because they got the gut. They may have it. a more pleasant digestive experience okay. than, than their non-Japanese counterpart. Um, but this also goes again into this, this idea of bacteria and parasites and in particular something called helminithic therapy. Oh, these are the hookworms, right? Yeah, yeah. It's deliberate infection with helminiths or parasitic worms to treat chronic autoimmune diseases like Crohn's disease and multiple sclerosis, as well as IBS and food allergies. Yeah. Over thousands and thousands of years, humans and hookworms end up, co- they've co-evolved with each other. The, the, the presence has become just a part of the system. Okay. And so they've, it actually, the, the hookworms, some people argue, actually stabilize conditions where otherwise the immune system would turn against its own body. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Um, and this is the, the idea again behind helminthic therapy is that you, you are doing this on purpose. You yeah. are uh, basically giving your body over to a parasite. Yeah. There was a, in the last year or so, there's been an episode of, uh, Radiolab and mm-hmm. this American, I think it was the Radiolab guys on this American life. And, um, and it was about this this guy who had all these allergies, and he just decided, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm just gonna go to Africa. I'm gonna mm-hmm. walk around in the uh, in this latrine field, and I'm gonna get hookworms, and I'm gonna see if they make me better." And he claims that they did. And and it, it again, it comes to the, the idea that that in the develop developing world mm-hmm. where hookworms are more of a problem, you have less of a problem with all these different allergies because you're exposed to yeah, it. Yeah, because you're exposed to it, and we've eradicated them. In in uh, in the developed world and the like Western civilization life, and then but we're but then it kind of we overlooked exactly what they were doing. It's like the I think there's an episode of of The Office where Dwight is fired, and then the plants start dying around the office because nobody realized that Dwight, as horrible as he was, was actually watering all the plants. Right. So it's kind of the, the that shrewd factor in all, in all of this. Um, but then in addition to to this this guy who's kind of a rogue. The self-experimenting yeah. online worm salesman. Uh, there, there also are people that, such as a professor, Professor David Pritchard of Nottingham University, who are analyzing this in a very scientific, uh, lab-oriented right. way. Uh, he also infected himself to find out just how the hookworms would play out, and he his findings were that ten worms is a good number to have in you. He's, he he gave himself fifty of them though, and ended up feeling really horrid uh, because you get too many, you get diarrhea, you get it. Uh, uh, anemic, uh, you lose too much blood, but, uh, we felt like 10. 10 yeah. That's one of those cases where if I ever feel bad for mice and, and the, all the indignities that they suffer through science, I look at someone like that and go, wow, thank you so <laughs> much for doing that. Um, because there is more, uh, more evidence, um, that th- there can be treatment of specific diseases with this. And I'm thinking about the whipworm and use of treatment of Crohn's disease. Uh, in fact, GUT, which is an international journal of gastroenterology and hepatology, uh, published a study on whipworm in which 29 Crohn's sufferers ingested 2,500 live whipworm ova three weeks for 24 weeks. And 23 of the 29 had decrease in symptoms, like, like oh. serious uh, decreases in symptoms, which is pretty huge when you have Crohn's disease. From what I understand, it can be really debilitating. Um, so I don't know. I, I, we definitely don't recommend that anybody uh, go out and buy yourself some hookworms or try to do that on your own, but it's it's uh, interesting to know that that's a sort of therapy that's out there and being 
at least studied right now. Yeah, and then we're coming back around and just re- reevaluating parasitic and symbiotic relationships to uh, to get a deeper understanding of these these relationships yeah. between these different species. Yeah. So we end up coming around to this idea that we're actually this mosaic of bacteria, um, and and it's it's understanding how important all these little interactions are to the the larger picture. Yeah, and it, it is. Um, there's something there that when you can shift your paradigm a little bit and look at the situation better, then all of a sudden you're, you're understanding, and then and these sorts of helminthic therapies start to make sense on some level. Again, we're not advocating the use of it, yeah. But the fact that this stuff is being explored is cool. Here's another DIY therapy that you should not try at home. Okay. Okay. Fecal transplants. Oh, oh yes, I forgot about this one. Yeah, Clostridium difficile, or C. diff on the streets. Uh, this is a virus that infects 250,000 people a year, and 13 out of every 1,000 people admitted to a hospital can pick up this bug or have picked up this bug. So this is something that, you know, one of those super bugs, I'm assuming, that mm-hmm. thrives in that condition. Um, it can cause years-long excruciating diarrhea and extreme weight loss. So people have had serious problems with this. Uh, they looked at... Uh, Traditional treatments, and they really haven't helped because uh, this strain of virus doesn't, uh, you know, since it's a hospital-made virus, essentially doesn't uh, respond well to antibiotics. I'm already grossed out, and you haven't even gotten to the the actual fecal, the fecal transplant. Tra- yeah, 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 yeah. All right, let's get to the poo, um, or, or rather the fecal transplant. Um, what you would want if you had this problem, if you had C. diff, and you and nothing would respond to it, is you would want a stool sample from a relative, preferably. Okay. Um, and it would be mixed with saline and then pumped into your colon. I know this all sounds like, <laughs> why? Why would I do this? Uh, the idea or the end result is that- Wait, now one, one quick question just to make sure I have this right. Yeah. Phrase this delicately. It would be administered to the colon through like naturally like occurring entries to the colon, right? Yeah, up your bum. I okay, mean, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, cool, yeah, cool. Yeah. All right. So, um, yeah, just to be okay, clear. Okay, I mean, there. I just had this horrible image of a giant poo syringe in my head, and I just really wanted to get rid of that image. So. No, no, you can. Okay, good. There no, as far as I know. Okay, erase. <laughs> um, I haven't personally experienced it, so mm-hmm. I, I, I can't verify, but there is no poo syringe uh, that I know of. But the idea is that you're rebalancing your gut flora. Okay. Because if you have C. diff then it's going to just completely lay waste, so to speak, to to your gut bacteria. You cannot get it back online. So the introduction of another bacteria or someone else's gut bacteria is going to make all the difference in helping you um, essentially just get rid of these symptoms. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of like if you have a a city where, where suddenly everybody's got a little too much money to take out the garbage. You're going to have to import garbage men kind of a situation where you have this population and there are so many different roles involved in making this population, this culture work. Yes. That, uh, that, uh, that even that you end up eradicating one segment of that population, um, yeah. then the whole system's going to suffer. And then you might need to bring in some, uh, members of, of another population that are interested in taking out the garbage. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The garbage analogy is a really good idea. And in fact, uh, 60% of our stool is bacteria. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. By weight. So 
again, this what we <laughs> what we may think of as garbage or this sort of essential maintenance to our culture mm-hmm. um, is really important. Um, so it would make sense that if you had someone else's gut bacteria that that was um, good bacteria and healthy, and it was reintroduced into your system, all of a sudden you wouldn't, you know, be completely debilitated by diarrhea all the time, uh-huh. and you would again be a healthy person. Like to put a sci-fi spin on it, we're all kind of big generation ships, just full of just generation after generation of bacteria thriving in us. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, or or a mosaic of, of mosaic bacteria, of which bacteria. sounds yeah. so much just a little more Gaia. nicer. Yeah, yeah. It's t- totally Gaia. Um, but this is from a Slate article. It said, "Do not look for this therapy to become a rote procedure anytime soon." Um, according to Slate, drug or medical device companies usually foot the bill for such research as this. But in the case of a natural patent-free, which is this, uh, patent-free treatment like this, no company stands to turn a major profit, profit, or profit. Profit. Some people prefer profit. If anything, fecal transplants would end up costing the pharmaceutical companies money because a single pill of vancomycin, which is one of two antibiotics used to treat C. diff, uh, costs about $55. Hmm. Yeah. So there you go. Fecal transplants don't do them at home. Okay. All right. Good. <laughs> but really interesting uh, development, I guess you would say. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. About the most I ever did was I tried to perform surgery on my own toenail once, and that was a mistake. That sounds like a really bad idea. Like, it like, was a horrible idea. Like home dentistry. Yeah. Home um, heart transplant. Mm-hmm. Uh, fecal transplants. And toe surgery. Yeah, home podiatry is not a not a good idea. Yeah, these are all things yeah. that I just I'm going to say I'm going to go on a, a limb here and say don't do them. I would go so and this is coming from someone who's done it. I would go as far as to say it's stupid. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> stupid at home, but very interesting. But you know it's not stupid. Sending us uh, email. Oh no, no, yeah, because we we get the best email I think of, of anyone in the world. Yeah, we recently did one on um, auditory and musical hallucinations, and uh, we received a number of, of really cool emails, like more than we can really get into. Because a lot of the ones that we've received, they're they're kind of in depth stories. Because you have to you, you describe a really strange situation, how you came into it, and in most cases, how you came out of it. Uh, but we have one here from Eric. Eric writes in to say, um, Back in 2005, I was involved in a bad accident, fractured my skull fairly badly. I spent two weeks at the ICU recovering, had brain surgery, and spent another two weeks in the hospital recovering from that. Beyond that, it took several months to he- beyond that, it took several months to heal at home before I was given all- the all clear and before I looked like I did before the accident. Life was pretty much back to normal until February of 2007. While at work, I had a seizure and collapsed. I had not had any previous seizures, but because of the head trauma, I was placed on medication. I was put on two medications, one to immediately prevent seizures and one that took time to build up in my system before it was effective. While I was simultaneously on both medications, I had several strange hallucinations. I would hear someone talking to me, but I was completely unable to understand them. I would hear the noise that they were making, but what I heard was just noise and in no way resembled language. I was worried that there was just something wrong with me until I spoke to to a friend who was epileptic, and he said that he had hallucinations just like I had while he was on both medications. Hmm. I haven't had any seizures since the first one, and after I was weaned off the first medication, medication i haven't had any hallucinations either uh, i hope you guys enjoyed my story and indeed i um I, I always enjoy hearing stories of of people who've experienced something a little um you know out of the ordinary be it a, a hallucination auditory hallucination 
um, or something that even at times will resemble a supernatural experience, but is rooted in, in as, as they all are, in something that's happening in the brain. Yeah, and again and again we hear these stories about the frontal lobe and mm-hmm. about the electromagnetic activity going on there just really causing all sorts of uh, things in your brain to go haywire. So yeah. I think it's interesting that he was talking about his friend and the seizures because that's a hallmark of, of um, that sort of activity going on there in the old frontal lobe. Yeah, so thanks for sharing, Eric. And, uh, you know, everybody else, if you have any cool tidbits like that to share, uh, feel free to drop by Facebook and Twitter. We're on both of those as Blow the Mind. And if you're on Twitter, uh, I encourage you to use the hashtag uh, BlewMyMind, which is already in use and has been in use by a number of people, uh, but is often used for very dumb things. And I think uh, we can reclaim that, listeners. We yeah, can, we've we got can, the campaign for, for Blue My Mind. Yeah. If you read a read a cool science article, uh, hear something cool on on one of our podcasts, uh, throw up that hashtag uh, Blue My Mind. Cool. Hash Blue My Mind, one word. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll read it and uh, we'll, we'll try and retweet it. Yeah, and oftentimes you guys actually send us things that are very mind-blowing as well. So, so something that you might have sent us in an email, throw it on Twitter as well. Yeah, indeed. That's not to say you shouldn't email us because you should uh, we always want to hear from you, so please do send us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. <laughs> 